You are listening to New Musings on New Music, where Norm Adams and Barbara Pritchard converse with guests from the world of contemporary art music. We are exploring some of the fascinating ideas found there and trying to demystify the wild and wonderful music. This episode is the next in our partnership with the Canadian Music Centre, and today we're really excited to be talking with Becca Sims, who uh, started out in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, was in Toronto for a while, and is now in Glasgow. Um, Becca writes really interesting music, and we're just so pleased to finally have you on the show. Welcome, Becca. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. We're going to begin our episode this week, this month, this episode, with a new question. Usually we ask, how did you get your start? But we wonder, after listening to your music, we wonder, how do you describe your music to people who haven't heard it before? If you were to elevate or pitch your music to your grandmother, what would you say? That's such a difficult question because I struggle with that all the time. Um, I usually tell people that it's experimental music that uses instruments from the orchestra. That's what I tell people who have absolutely no experience with what I do. Okay. Uh, Because I I don't, classical, saying anything with the word classical is just going to give them the wrong idea entirely. Like it is notated. It uses instruments from the orchestra, but the, the sounds I'm after, the environments I'm after with the sounds... It's not very far, very distant from classical. It's more in common with experimental, electronic, metal sometimes, folk sometimes. So, yeah. I hear lots of metal in your music. For sure. It was like an adolescent love affair that I had with metal. And so the the relationship is is largely nostalgic because I I used to almost have like an IV drip with metal into my arm when I was 13. (laughs) And now I I only... (laughs) I only go back to it occasionally now. I'm 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 not like a one of those purest metalheads anymore. But it stayed with right. me in, in the way that things we love as teenagers tend to do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to take a tangent right away. Okay. And ask what uh, you use the word experimental music really early on here. How do you use the term experimental, and why do you use the word experimental? That's this is a, this is a personal uh, question that I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel that when your music is is often about process and not necessarily about product, and you're mm-hmm. looking at um, ways of making music that are not guaranteed to be successful, or that you, you're not exactly sure uh, what the resulting sound will be, but you're curious about it, you want to experiment with it, whether that's going to be uh, an amazing sound or a horrific sound, but you've committed to it nonetheless. You've committed to the mm. sense of experimentation mm. and exploration and play. I think mm. that's why I'm using experimental. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great uh, definition of, of the yeah. term. Yeah. What uh, The problem that I have, and the reason I ask the question is because when I hear the ter- word, I mean, I know what experimental music, but when people, civilians hear the term experimental, they think, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether this is going to be good or not. This is scary. I don't want to. I don't want to take any chances. Whereas you know, those of us that are experienced with this kind of uh, process, we know we have a kind of an idea that it's going to be strong, or we're we're good artists that that even if it's kind of bad, it's still pretty good. <laughs> so so I think we're we're lacking a better descriptor for 
music that is unpredictable or is un uncertain or whatever. I think the, I think people are just used to different levels of comfort with the art, mm. depending on the medium. Like if people go into a horror movie, they know that they're going to feel ill at ease and they want to be spooked a little bit, right? Like they're kind of consenting to that experience by walking mm. into the movie theater. I think with, with music, a lot of people ascribe this automatic beauty or this automatic... Um, sense of of wonder or they they also tend to ascribe uh emotional arcs and narratives to to music that a lot of experimental music is a little bit more emotionally obscure and i think it's because that expectation is there for a lot of folks that's what causes the tension mm -hmm. rather rather than mm -hmm. just like oh they won't like it or they don't like it it's just they they haven't necessarily felt like they've signed up for it right right yeah. there's this nostalgia piece too that People like to be familiar, feel safe and familiar in in listening to music, you know, which songs they know provides, but also tonality provides or, um, you know, other, you know, ensemble, uh, a string quartet might serve, uh, might provide, you know, familiarity uh, breeds comfort. Yeah, I remember reading something about the, the fact that a lot of people don't add anything new to their listening library after like 30 three or something, which incidentally yeah. is the, the birthday that I'm coming up upon. So <sighs> scary. <laughs> Just get the metal going again. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is that I can't ever imagine myself ever being like, oh, I'm done finding new bands or new no. music. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, a lot of people in music feel the exact same way. So it's difficult for us to imagine being this person who hasn't um, sought out new musical experiences yeah. for, for decades. Um, but yeah. I mean, they're, they're out there certainly like there's just a really wide variety of listening types, art consuming yeah. types, you know, I find myself almost uh, avoiding the comfortable music of my past, mm. actually, mm -hmm. like, like yeah. going, Oh, no, I shouldn't listen to, you know, Elvis Costello, it's 1978 record that I love so much, I should listen to his new stuff, or I should listen to somebody else, or, you know, I should listen to the band that my son says I should listen to <laughs> instead. And I do. Yeah, I feel I feel a a real pull to not fall back and feel comfortable, but to keep keep rolling forward for what it's worth. It does feel good to listen to some of those songs, though. Oh, it definitely or, scratches. Or Beethoven's Third Symphony, for that matter. You know, it's that's pretty comfy too. I think it scratches an itch on the brain for sure. Mm. I, I just feel mm. like hyper aware of how easy it is for us to listen to just about anything that's ever been recorded in the history of record the recording arts like yeah. streaming services and the internet like you know when i was a teenager I, I had to go buy a cd like i couldn't just just stumble upon um a balkan folks singing group online it was yeah. really what yeah. was available to me like in newfoundland or um what i could order in through like cd plus at the mall or something so it's just like it feels like there's no excuse not to be able to to listen to things that are uh, absolutely. unfamiliar yeah yeah absolutely yeah. So this is a great segue, uh, Barbara, to the standard question, I think. <laughs> right. So, yes, we're going to move to our standard question, which is, uh, <laughs> tell us how you got to where you are today, musically speaking. Yeah, it's like a pretty windy road, to be honest. But like I was always there was no surprise to me that I, I stuck with music um, as a passion, I am surprised to be like a professional musician. Um, but 
<laughs> I, I just didn't consider like being in Newfoundland is like uh, there were very very few people that were able to actually do it as like a sole as a sole mm. job. And for some reason, growing up, I just didn't uh, consider that I might leave the island because I didn't really mm. know many people who did that unless it was like working in Alberta for like three weeks and then coming back to Newfoundland for two weeks, you know, the Fort McMurray type of situation. I didn't see myself yeah. doing that. Um, but I was really, I was really obsessed with video game music when I was younger. Um, I didn't play outside as a child. Uh, and I just wanted to be. <laughs> well, like... it was Newfoundland. So <laughs> chances are it was sideways rain or something. So we it don't was, blame you. It's a cold, harsh world out there. And I would rather yeah. um, level up in a Japanese role-playing game on my PlayStation. Um, and that music was was basically like the systems I was playing at, they were mostly like 16 bar loops of very simple melodies, usually modal, but also kind of with that chip tune electronic, electronic equality of the time. Right. And it actually reminded me a lot of folk music, like the Irish Newfoundland folk music that was around because it was modal. Cause the games were all coming from Japan at that time, but the settings of the game were mostly like medieval European inspired fantasy. So there was this very strong sense of modality and then when I started listening to metal music, it was also super modal. So this like sort of prevalence of modal music was um, was like kind of what got me into music that was different than what I was hearing on the radio. So I just uh, I knew that I was kind of I had like a curious ear just from from those early early circumstances. Uh, I also use like St. John's has a fantastic um, has a fantastic music scene. And it had a really good all ages punk and metal scene in like 2003 to 2008 when I was, you know, under underage and still wanting to go to bar shows. Um, and the thing about like metal shows and punk shows uh, is that the music is really virtuosic and the musicians are really young and not quite able to play it. So it ends up being really <laughs> sloppy and really energetic. And I remember yeah. thinking that that was just... Uh, a perfect combination, like all of that earnestness of spirit and harshness of timbre and the absolute, you know, the com rhythmic complexity of people playing things wrong, because people playing <laughs> things wrong is usually way more complex than them playing it right. And, and that, was, that was in my head for a long time. Um, and so when I started writing like classical music, it wasn't really until I was at my music school um, and I auditioned um, on the flute and I hoped to be uh, a performance major. Uh, I wasn't really cut out for performance, but while I was there, I was introduced to contemporary concert music and I heard a lot of things that I was interested in in other genres, but I realized that as a non-performer, I could actually kind of take part in composition more fully. Um, and I could make people play things that were too difficult for me to play, which was mm -hmm. a huge uh, point of interest. Um, so yeah, I, start, I started writing concert music that was sort of a little influenced by folk music, uh, you know, some residual threads of metal and video game music. And then when I got to Toronto and sort of heard the wider scope of things, um, that's when my sort of electroacoustic practice really took off. Because my music is pretty, pretty heavy on the electronics and even the acoustic stuff is meant to sound as if it could be electronics. Uh, one of the pieces yeah. on my most recent album is called From Void. And I it was part of this competition with the uh, Ensemble Contemporain de Montréal called Generations. And you get this jury feedback and there's like, you know, 20 or 30 jurors. And I think three or four of the jurors literally thought my piece was electroacoustic and it was completely acoustic. So I tricked the jury members, which I think is like nice. a true badge 
true badge of honor if you're going for like electronic sounds and writing acoustic yeah. music. Um, and it, specifically, it was um, it was studying with uh, Martin Bedard in Montreal through um, this program called Pivot that I was sort of my mind was open to the acousmatic side of things. And I also worked at um, New Adventures in Sound Art or NASA, which was a right. um, I think it's one of one of the few or the only sort of um, English language electroacoustic presenters in Canada and they were based in Toronto while I was there I was but I was like their administrator I was like the um the, the fan on the sidelines just being like oh I hope I can do this one day meanwhile just like lugging around the eight channel speakers and you know what <laughs> I did do it one day which is uh I'm, I'm really grateful for them for that um yeah and so I just I think I got to where I am through having like a really voracious listening appetite and kind of going with the flow in terms of um, like where, where I was living, where I was studying, just being open to like those types of experiences mm. and having sort of like letting my inspiration be an additive process rather than a fixed thing. So every time I find something that's intriguing or I go to a new place, I can sort of add it to this disgusting mm. bowl of soup that is my musical practice, like inedible but smells really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wish we had a headline for our podcast because that would be it. Inedible. That would be it. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I will uh, plug our own podcast by uh, noting that your professor at MUN was Andrew Staniland, who uh, recorded an episode with us last season. And it was a most entertaining one as well. So I recommend everyone go and and listen to it. And I also can hear how, as you're the first one of his students that we've talked to on this on this uh, podcast, I can also see how his kind of attitude has rubbed off on you a little bit. It's pretty, it's pretty not precious, and <laughs> and I really appreciate that in in the both of you actually. Yeah, Andrew and was... in the results in the results of the music. Yeah, I, Andrew was. Um... Andrew was like the first person that I met that was like, you know, had a, um, before he was a professor, had like a full-time freelance type of career and made me realize that you could actually go be a composer full-time. Um, and he introduced me to a lot of music and just like his attitude about composing was really practical, but still inspired. And, yeah. uh, his music was also, also very electronic. Um, and while he was, when he started his time at MUN, it was just as I was ending and, there wasn't a full composition degree program yet, but he gave me lessons anyway. Like they were not like mandated. He literally out of the, the goodness of his heart, generosity was like, wow. oh, this kid is really into composing and they don't have the opportunity to do it through the existing program. Cause I was doing theory, music theory and composition. Right. Uh, and yeah, we, we just, we had lessons that were really, really impactful and inspiring. Mm. So an additional shout out to Andrew Staniland for yes. being an amazing yes, person. Yeah, indeed. So let's talk a little bit more. I'm interested in the, in the, your use of electronics. I mean, now we know that you came out of video game music as well as, as rock music or metal, but, what purpose do the electronics, I mean, you have those electronics sitting in parallel with obviously orchestral instruments, as you say, what purpose do they play? Are they 
enhancing or are they another voice or are they making a sound that you can't find? I mean, obviously they're not making a sound you can't find because you can make the orchestral instruments sound like electronic instruments. <laughs> What's the point? The I think the point is that the electronics are not just a stand-in for another player. They can be a stand-in for an entire universe of players, mm -hmm. including the players that are already there. Um, it's, it is an expansion of the sound on the stage, but there are additional elements that are, are very challenging to get with just the acoustic portion of things. Um, I'm particularly interested lately in microtonal music. And some, interest, some instruments are better at that than others. So if you're working on a piano that's in equal temperament, you're not allowed to tune it, but you're really, really keen on having particular microtonal elements, you can kind of swoop them into the electronics and kind of just um, shift them out. <laughs> you can over, you can like sort of overstep the limitations of what's on stage. You can just kind mm -hmm. of crack the universe open of sound. Um, and for me too, I, I, what I like about electronics is that there's a disembodiment of the sound. Like my electronics are often made not through synthesized sound, but through the manipulation of recorded audio. And usually that recorded audio comes from uh, the instruments that are on the stage. So there's usually that flavor. So it's, let's say it's a trombone solo. The flavor of trombone is still in the electronics, um, but it goes very, very distant from trombone and really similar to trombone so that it's a little bit of a disorientation of what is actually coming from the stage trombone and what's coming from this electronic component. And those pieces are also all amplified. So the trombone on the stage is also coming through the speakers. So there's like a right. further confusion about what's what and and i love sonic disorientation sonic confusion if people don't know how the sound is made where the sound is coming from that's how i feel like i've done my job right yeah, i hear you so are you are you live do you ever live process the instruments or are they all is that is are the electronics a separate channel as it were it's usually they are they are fixed audio files that are triggered yeah. live um, I don't often do live signal processing. Um, not that I'm not interested in it. It's um, it's sort of a a behemoth task to learn mm -hmm. how to do that. That I I've mm -hmm. unfortunately been putting off for for too long at this point. Um, but I've I've worked with other people in collaborative ways um, to sort of create live electronic processing. So my um, cello concerto Forever Dark, which is on mm -hmm. um, my album Bestiary. Um, that has live processing on the cello soloist. Um, okay. Cello. I thought I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't design no. it. So like essentially, you know, I decided, you know, what kind of delays or what kind of reverbs or what kind of effects I wanted, but then my friend and very constant collaborator, Dan Tapper went and actually did the, the programming and the coding for that so that right. I had a, a patch to use. Uh, and I know how to operate the patch and, you know, I've, I've operated it independently, um, but I didn't actually design it myself. Right. I believe it was Laurie Friedman that once said to me, if you want to be a performer, you can't be a computer programmer as well. When, <laughs> when I was in my in the midst of my Max MSP phase, she says, there's not enough time to be both a performer and a, uh, a computer engineer. Oh, man. Give well, up now, she said. Well, thank you, Rory. I, in a nice that's way. a nice permission, actually. I, I, I think it's, it is true. Having, having fallen down that rabbit hole uh, and emerged from it, do, do, using far fewer electronics, I'll say. <laughs> um, 
yeah, it's it can take over your well, it does take over your life, and and I don't think there's any shame in in uh, in let, letting the experts. It's a different kind of brain that does that stuff. You're also you know? focusing on writing a new piece, and if you're trying to make the piece good while also learning an entirely new set of yeah. skills simultaneously, it's like yeah, yeah it, it it comes down to time, and so much of of compositional decisions that are unfortunately impacted by just like. Uh, what is practical and, and what can you do in the amount of time you have and, and learning yeah. new new programming or becoming a software coder or programmer or engineer, as you say, like, like, listen, how ludicrous that sounds coming out of my mouth. Like, of course, if you can out what you can outsource, outsource it, you know, it's I mean, it's also two completely different brain muscles you're using. I mean, there's the there's the creative compositional imagining sounds side. And then there's the absolutely organized logic that is necessary to program computers. It's its two completely different sides of your brain that are complicated to use at the same time. And I don't know many who can use those in, in equal measure. Well, it's funny because a, a lot of, of course. there definitely are composers who, who do their programming with Max. Yeah. Then you, you open up the hood of the Max patch and you see the yeah. chaos inside and you're yes. like, oh. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't work. Unfortunately, it doesn't work half the time too. So. Oh yeah. That's, that was yeah. the other thing about live electronics that always spooked me out. Um, yeah. Very early yeah. in my musical studies, I'd seen a couple of concerts that used live electronics and without fail, all of them yeah. didn't work. And I just thought, why does anyone do this? Yeah. Like the risk level just seemed really high to me. And now that I understand it a little bit more, I, I don't have that same level of fear, like blatant fear about it. But um, oh, I do. <laughs> I, I think what I need is like a residency where I'm not writing a piece. I'm just learning how to do that with no expectation yeah. of like a creative result, just accruing yeah. skills. Yeah. And yeah. I think the, the further we get into our careers, the less and less time we have to do those types of opportunities. There's always sort of like a um, a product that's expected from you at the end, which is too bad. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so you've moved into a new part of your career in the last short while, and you've swapped your freelance composer job for... Uh, a university position or a conservatoire position in Glasgow. You're the second. I'll also plug our podcast once again, mm -hmm. saying you're the second composer, Canadian composer that we've spoken to from Glasgow. Uh, Emily Doolittle being the other one. So Wonderful. you guys must just have a whole Canadian club over there. It's so it's like a popular destination for North American artists and scholars for yeah. sure. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of us. And Emily actually was on my. Um, my job panel, like for my interview at the conservatoire, like nice. we, we are co-workers and colleagues. Oh, I'm just curious about the whole uh, Glasgow thing. Tell us, I'm, I'm curious <laughs> to know um, how you're using your compositional skills there as well as presumably your teaching skills. And what's the musical life like there? And is it influencing you? And yeah, all that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still finding my bearings a little bit here. I Even though I moved at the end of August, um, three days after I moved, I went and spent three weeks in the Netherlands because I was an awards finalist for the uh, Hadeyamas Prize. Um, and then like three weeks later, I was in Toronto for a week. Then I was in Vancouver for a week, two weeks after that. I've been so on the go that it's been a little bit challenging to finally to, or to really like understand Glasgow. But what mm -hmm. I have found is that it's extremely easy to stumble onto 
really interesting music. Um, they have a real DIY ethos here. Um, and part of that comes from the fact that there are plenty of venues. They are affordable to rent. And sometimes they're like, oh, you're doing a community-oriented initiative. Why don't you have our space for free? Which is mm. just, you don't have to have a grant to do something here. And so you can go wow. see like a bunch of uh, really interesting, weird 19-year-olds do the strangest concert you've ever seen in your life. And you're like, oh my God, my mind is blown. And it's just because they have the access to it. Um, at the conservatoire, it's, it's a learning environment that I was never lucky enough to take part in as a student because the composers are studying alongside, yeah, sure, instrumental performers, which is normal, but they're also studying alongside ballerinas and stage directors and actors and like all artistic disciplines are all there at the conservatoire and they consistently spit out like the UK's finest talent. It's like a little intimidating to be in an environment like that actually. Um, because you're just you're also surrounded by not just talented students, but your your peers or like your colleagues as lecturers, they are supposed to be and are uh, teacher artists. So they're there because they are invested in in being great teachers, but also have fantastic careers as artists, and they're expected to maintain those careers in a way that um, it's not it's not quite the same as with university teachers and their research, like essentially almost everybody on staff is part-time because they know that you can't just compose on weekends and evenings and not have rest, right? So my work there is Monday to Wednesday, and then the rest of the time is for composing. And that's that's what I want, and that's what they want too. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I had been a finalist for a couple of tenure-track university positions in Canada, and one of them, I had like a one-to-one -one, um sort of chat with the the head of the department and he said to me you know you're not going to compose anything for about three years after you start this position right and I remember thinking like that sounds horrible like this is this dream job but it means taking away my artistic practice you know the, the reason that I want to teach is because I love this thing I love doing this thing not just the teaching but the thing that I am teaching um, so the fact that they really value maintaining that over here like I finished two pieces since I got here like and they make that extremely possible and so that type of work culture is just um it's a real breath of fresh air for me and I think it's um it's going to be like crucial for me being an artist is like I, I need to be teaching because I, I need that sort of um constant conversation and analysis of just the act of composing itself, which you talk about all the time with your students, like you're sort of forced to confront what you value and what is valued in the art that you make. And then when you're done having those conversations Monday to Wednesday, then you go to your practice kind of refreshed from that. And so mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm feeling very good about the entire sort of setup nice. here with, with, with yeah. my job um, and with the city. Uh, like tomorrow there's like, um, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra is doing like a whole concert of new orchestral music and it's free. It's just, you can just, wow. yeah, you can just go to it. And like uh, the, the past three weeks has all been Celtic connection festival concerts. I went to like the most amazing Ulian piping concert and like, it just, there's no, there's no end to the variation of shows here. Also amazing city for metal. Oh my God. Like it, it's um, considered a UNESCO <laughs> city of music. So most, most bands or, or acts that are touring, 
they will stop in Glasgow. They're much more likely to stop in Glasgow than Edinburgh, which is which is usually the Scottish city that people are like, oh, that's a nice city. And they don't often say that about Glasgow, unfortunately, no. even though Glasgow is cool as hell. And and yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I like to I like a cool sort of blue collar, rough around the edges city. Like this is this is my vibe, and yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's like the St. John's of the UK. <laughs> well, there are many St. John's of the UK, but maybe it's the St. John's of St. It reminds me a little of like Kreuzberg, actually, because I lived in Berlin for a little bit in 2020. Okay. It has that same yeah. Yeah. sort of feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It's uh, what a great uh, situation for you to be in. That's and and so kind of early on in your career. It's amazing. Yeah, I feel I really feel like I lucked out um, because a, a lot of um, people that I know on both sides of me in terms of age and experience uh, are having a lot of burnout. Uh, I think it's something that we struggle with yeah. a lot. Um, mm -hmm. At one point, I was a visiting assistant professor at Western University while also working full time at the Canadian League of Composers as a general manager like that yeah. is yeah. so bleak for creating any type of art or making any sort of space for yourself. Um, yeah. so the fact that I can sort of, you know, survive very comfortably over here with like a two thirds of a teaching job and, and composing is just, um, yeah. I feel very privileged for sure. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Great. Now, you just mentioned, um, I, I wanted to ask you about this. You mentioned the Canadian League of Composers. That's not the same thing as the Canadian Music Centre, which our less listeners are familiar here. You know, the, we, we talk about that a lot, the CMC. But can you tell us about the Canadian League of Composers? Yeah, for sure. The Canadian League of Composers is sort of a sister organization to the Canadian Music Center. Um, so the CMC, of course, is, is excellent at, you know, keeping our scores safe, making sure that people can access our music and perform it. The Canadian League of Composers is concerned with ensuring that we are paid properly for our commissions. We understand our rights as composers and we are treated uh, well by the arts councils, both nationally and provincially. Um, the Canadian League of Composers is also uh, invested in creating free access resources on, um, oh my God, contracts. What do you do when you are trying to get uh, better rates of pay and stuff and you're dialoguing with someone? I literally forget the verb. Negotiations. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. We're very... <laughs> I think I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes, like in my role as a general manager, I would actually kind of step in on behalf of our members and and negotiate for them, especially if they were being treated as if they were more naive than they actually were because they needed to bring in the big guns, which is the CLC. Um, mm. And every year we do uh, like a research project in order to get more standardized rates for things. So we, we recently released one on mechanical and sync licensing. The year before it was on orchestration and arranging fees. And then of course, our most, uh, our most commonly accessed resource is our minimum commissioning rates, which is basically how you know most composers across the country are deciding how much their work is is worth, and that's a minimum that's a minimum uh, fee rate. And I increasingly hear from composers elsewhere in the world that use those rates converted into their own currency because most places don't have that. Most places don't have this oh, kind of like um, understood minimum, and and if there is, people don't talk about it. It's not like sort of a transparent number. So yeah. My impression is is that that sort of non-standard pricing is unique to 
to musicians too that that actors and dancers all seem to have like kind of set rates and and visual artists especially have like kind of set rates that are quoted all the time and everybody knows them but we have to sort of hunt down a standard rate for something musical yeah it's it's frustrating there's there's stronger unions in those disciplines for whatever reason like even in in canada like the clc rates for like giving a presentation or sitting on a jury they're actually all borrowed from the carfac rates which are right. you know yeah. like they've they've done which the work visual arts exactly yeah so the clc is not like technically a union it's an arts service organization but we we function as best we can as as a union so uh what are you working on now right now actually right before we started chatting um, I'm working on an audiovisual work for Jaw Harp Soloist Ensemble Electronics. Uh, and actually, you got you folks are in Nova Scotia, right? Yep. So maybe you know Chick White, Darcy Spidal? Of course. Okay. Yes, of course. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, and he can make sounds that I've never thought humanly possible with or without yeah. Jaw Harp. Um, what did I call him recently? Um, insectoid grunt machine which is the name of an instrument that i would like to write for and he is, as a body as a person is an instrument really um so the piece is really based on his exceptionally unique sonic vocabulary yeah, um, yeah. it's really all about him and kind of creating musical shapes and environments around him that kind of um, come from his various jaw harp sounds. And I'm again working with Dan Tapper and he's creating sort of live spatialized audio and this really fantastic visuals on two projectors. Um, and a piece is called Spore Wind and it's being presented by Continuum Ensemble in Toronto. Okay. So right. I'll, I'll be, be in town in June for that because I'll be running some of the electronic stuff and it's uh, yeah, it's a big piece too. I think it's going to be about like twenty minutes or so because it's it's yeah, it's chick white and a string quartet and percussion and electronics and and uh, Darcy doesn't read music, uh, so yeah, I, I was just going to ask, what does the score look like for that piece? It's with timestamped notation, and because I compose um, in my digital audio workstation using audio rather than with notation, like most of the time, notation comes last for me. I transcribe everything after I've sort of put it all together in a DAW. Um, and so Darcy can like listen to the piece at almost an exact approximation of like what it's going to really sound like. And for our workshop that we had back in Toronto in October, he just memorized the piece essentially. Um, and because the, the mock-up also has his part, he could memorize his part from that. Then I'd send him a version of the mock-up without his part and he'd practice along with it. And so even though he has the notation and he can see sort of what's happening at one minute and what's happening at one and a half, he's, he's just spent so much time with it. He's really diligent that like he doesn't really even need it. Um, wow. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, it's uh, that's a challenge that we have when we work with people from different musical universes is how do you, how do you talk to them and get them to, to, uh, to, how do you communicate and and with them? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's it's such a question worth figuring out because it, it mm. really expands our potential musical collaborators extensively. Totally. And if anyone can sound like an electronic instrument, it's uh, Chick White for sure. Absolutely. Some, there's there's it's almost yeah extra human for sure. 
Yeah, I, I saw him play a show in Toronto with um, with Gail Young. Actually, that's who was okay. double bill. Um, really interest, interestingly complimentary to one another, really. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just I was just blown away because the what also is really appealing to me about um, Chick White's technique is how closely amplified it is to his body. So it mm-hmm. picks up the jaw harp, of course, but it also picks up like the sounds of his face, the sounds of his throat, the mm-hmm. sounds of his mouth moving. And so there's this like grotesque, this Cronenbergian grotesquerie to the sound. Yeah, Cronenbergian is a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's very heavy. It's small and heavy. And I think that contrast of something being small, but um, really hard edged is what brought me to to it and so that like i also curated um that concert and amplification and taking small sounds and making them brutal is kind of the theme of the concert that comes from his playing very metal <laughs> i know i can't get away from it <laughs> you cannot i'll uh, i'll make sure to we can link to to chick white's music in our notes excellent yes yeah, it's, it's definitely worth taking a dive into and there's and there's lots of it he's quite prolific it's tough going i will say i've suddenly listened has presented him before and it's it's not it's not a pleasant it's not a pleasant experience as it were it's it's challenging uh um but it's but worth hearing it's a unique certainly a a completely unique voice out there yeah and I, i think um some a lot of what he does is very yeah can be quite uncomfortable especially for an unseasoned listener yeah um but there there are a couple of special harps that he has that are almost wind instrument or fan like industrial sound that has less less of a body to it um and so there's i think the the 20 minutes that i'm doing is like it's fairly balanced between um things that are a a little easier to to hear and and a little more challenging to hear because i think that's that's important to consider as well there's a there's a good question. Do you consider how much do you consider your audience when you're writing music? Uh, I try not to think about them at all, to be honest. Okay. Um, mostly because I I don't want to get into this idea that an audience is monolithic. I have no idea who's going to be my audience, who's going to yeah. show up. You know, I'm I'm an audience member, and I have like really wide tastes, and the things that I want to hear often like make other people angry so um there, there could be 20 me's that show up there's really no way of knowing so as long as i'm intrigued i'm and i'm interested in the sonic result then i i feel like that's um that's sort of my responsibility as a composer is just to mm-hmm. do the best that, that i can do and um yeah not not let uh an imagined and amorphous body of people kind of pollute whatever that idea is Right. Yeah. Nice. That's that's nice. nice. Pollute's a strong word, but I know. As I'm thinking of spore wind, I'm I'm like on the poisonous uh, spore (laughs) spot in my head. Compromise maybe is a better word, (laughs) if I may say. Thank you. (laughs) It's okay. I can edit all this so that you don't you say compromise instead somehow. Wow, I'm impressed. That's some <laughs> no. A tier oh. editing. I'm leaving uh, pollute in there because it's it's good. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know the the world is the world is burning. Pollute is just no. where that comes it's, out. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. So, um, Becca, you are an associate composer with the Canadian Music Centre. Can you tell us more about your connections with that organization? 
Yeah. So because I lived in Toronto for nine years, I got to see um, like the physical location of the Canadian Music Centre really early in my studies. So I've always had um, an impression of the CMC as like sort of a meeting space, like a physical meeting space, as well as kind of like an advocate for composers' music. So I've seen a lot of really interesting concerts at their space, saw their library. And, and that was my first interfacing with it before I was an associate composer as I, I saw it as this beautiful old building straight in Toronto um, that, you know, put on excellent shows and had excellent staff. Uh, particularly, yes. I, I used to interface with Matthew Fava, who is a, a darling angel baby and now is working at the Transac, which is also a very cool place in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so after I joined the CMC, I noticed a, a huge uptick in the interest in my music. And I think when people are specifically looking for works by Canadian composers, like that, it's just where you go, right? Yeah. And there are, especially at the conservatory, not the conservatories, or the universities across the country, like a lot of places have requirements for students to learn Canadian repertoire and present Canadian repertoire. And the fact that it's all kind of, consolidated in one place is really, really helpful. And a lot of those folks go on to continue playing Canadian repertoire. And the fact that um, they're essentially like the the publisher of the nation, like the distributor of the nation, uh, which is, is really handy. Um, they're also where I've published my recordings. So not just my music, but both of my uh, full length albums are through center discs. So the fact that they not just do the, the sheet music, but also um, have the capacity to release physical stuff, including vinyl, which was so, so handy. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel pretty strongly about, about the Canadian music center and my affiliation with them. And, uh, yeah, particularly with, with, with the albums, like I just received my third Juno nomination and they're all oh. on center discs. So. Congratulations. Nice. Congratulations. Those were just released the other day or today or yesterday. Or yesterday. Something. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Good. And that, is that for the new, record yeah it's or... for um classical composition of the year so it's it's for okay. um bestiary one and Excellent. two which is the last track right nice oh, that wow. i listened to today nice so where uh one of the questions we also ask regularly is if you were to say hey listen to three of my pieces or two of my pieces what would they be and where could we where could we send our listeners to to hear those pieces well, actually, like the album that I keep mentioning, uh, yes. Best Series, has exactly Best three series. pieces on it. Ah. <laughs> um, and they're, they're all for chamber orchestra, like 11 to 20 players. Um, and they all kind of deal with external source material as, as the main um, source of inspiration. So they're pretty, they're pretty indicative of like my general musical interests. Um, but from that album, I'd say... From Void, in particular, the middle track. Um, there's also Jubilant Phantoms for accordion and electronics. That's just available on YouTube. And, and that has a, mu- a wonderful music video made by Fong Tran. Um, it's just a big, boomy accordion piece for just in just intonation uh, performed by Joseph Petrich. And it sounds mm-hmm. really happy with the recording on that. Um, and then number three, I would say subsume uh which is another audiovisual piece actually um that i wrote for new music concerts and it's on their youtube channel um under their live tab and the visuals for that were made by dan tapper 
And that piece is is acousmatic. So essentially, it's not it's not meant for live performance, but it's uh, made from recordings of about 15 players with really, really awesome instrumentation, actually, uh, like lots of really low instruments like um, a bass flute and electric bass, but then also like gusheng and show and lute and recorders, kalimba. It was just like the most kaleidoscopic instrumentation imaginable. And I had, I had a lot of, a lot of fun with it. And I finished that up just in like November or December. So it's like, it's pretty, pretty indicative of like my more recent things. Why did, did that become an acousmatic piece? When you say uh, acousmatic, maybe you can define that for our listening audience. Yeah. So like electroacoustic, uh, at least in Canada, I've learned that this is, has different definitions over here. Um, electroacoustic, there's usually an electronic element and an acoustic element. So there are live, live players. Um, and then acousmatic is music for speakers, essentially. Um, so no, so no live players. Uh, the reason that that is acousmatic is because it's part of new music concerts, 50th anniversary commission set for distanced ensemble. So essentially they were doing these like as a pandemic response and also to celebrate the 50th anniversary. Um, and they wanted the pieces to be realizable by players recording at home. So yeah, that, that for me was an opportunity to make something that was impossible to play, but was all sort of sourced from, from, possible things, the possible made in impossible, which is another thing that I like to play with musically in general. Did you uh, provide notes for each of those people to play and just record in their own studios and then, and then you layered them together? Is that how that worked? So I provided them with a series of written prompts. So they didn't get any pitches or rhythms or anything like that. Um, and they all got the exact same sheet of prompts and interpreted okay. them wildly differently and in, in just the way that you hope would happen when you give people a set of written instructions. Um, and the sounds like, I just got like the most ideal set of sounds imaginable. I was, I was really happy with the results. Amazing. Those uh, COVID layering audio projects that we all, that many of us took part in uh, during various lockdowns got pretty tired pretty soon, <laughs> pretty early for me. But man, when you can get really unpredictable things being layered together, it, it's, it remains pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I would really struggle if I was expected to write something for like live stream performance where everybody's playing yeah. something together. I, was, I wasn't really interested in that. And I'm becoming sort of less interested in... Um, in those types of musical soundscapes in general, I, I'm going quite amorphous in my sense of time and notation lately. Um, this piece for Chick White is the same way, right? Because it's timestamp notation, like nothing is sort of ascribed to a meter and nothing needs to be exactly um, together necessarily. And I think that's very freeing. And is the string quartet through composed or is it also prompts of other kinds in, in that the Chick White piece? There's, um, so it's a concerto. Well, we were kind of conceiving of it as a concerto for jaw harp and um, Chick White has sort of been learning this um, 18th century German jaw harp concerto. And I've decided to start this piece Sporewind with kind of like a little bit of a reference to the string part of that. So the opening of it, which is just strings and electronics and a little bit of percussion is actually notated out. 
But then once the jaw harp comes in, then it's, it's a lot more amorphous. And they're not given written prompts. They are given, they're notated um, somewhat conventionally, but they are very free. So I, I tend to use a lot of like cell notation where they have um, just gestures and kind of um, like ad libitum repeats, free of meter, free of time, all, and absolutely non-coordinated. No, no allowing right. to coordinate on a pulse with somebody next to you. Nice. <laughs> nice. Great. That's the way we like it. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, Barbara, do you have anything else? I think we're almost through our, oh, our list. Um, I guess you, you mentioned at one point doing microtonal stuff. Mm. And I noticed on your website some reference to just intonation. And I'm just curious, um, have you got anything more in the future around those ideas, tuning or? Yeah, definitely. Um... So I've got a couple of projects um, that are going to start as soon as I'm finished Sporewind, there's a flurry of compositional activity awaiting me. Um, one, one piece I have is for the Batsinis. And in particular, they've reached out to um, applicants to their composer's kitchen um, program who had proposed a microtonal piece. And they're getting us all together to, to workshop some microtonal works and present them all together sometime next year. Um, so I'll be doing that workshop, I think, in April in Montreal. Um, and I'm writing a concert length work. So about like 45 minutes to an hour long work for Crash Ensemble in Dublin. Um, I'm an artist in residence with them. So I'll be doing workshop with them in April as well in Dublin. And uh, that piece is based off of um, really long periods of piano solo with uh, electronics that are a vir virtual pianos in just intonation. So it's about sort of the interaction between the equal tempered piano and sort of oh the, the millions of versions of, of just intonation keyboards in the electronics. Um, I wrote them a piece called Metamold a couple of years ago. And there's a section of it that does that, that has this sort of interaction between the the grand piano, the live grand piano and these just intonation keyboards. And it's only about three minutes long, the section, but it became, I've just become obsessed with that sound. And I want to really, really thoroughly explore that. And so this mm. sort of concert like piece is going to be my time to do that. I, I would say most of my pieces now at involve at least some portion of just intonation. Could you just define just intonation for us quickly? Um, quickly, I'm not sure. Um, hmm. <laughs> usually when we hear a scale played, it's it's equally tempered. So the distance between each note is the exact same. It's always 100 cents. In just intonation, those intervals can change in size. So r rather than having um, two notes next to each other being 100 uh, cents apart, it might be 88 cents, it might be 63 cents, you start getting things like instead of uh, a semitone, you might get a quarter of a tone or a sixth of a tone. And so there's, um, there's extra considerations to both the playing of that and to the notation of that, um, mm. which is why electronics become very handy for this type yes. of writing. Yes, yeah. And but just intonation uh, is based on the harmonics, the sort of laws of physics, though, right? It, the the yeah, harmonic series. Yeah, yeah but not necessarily. Um, if you have any sort of whole integer ratio, you could probably find it in the harmonic series, but it might be like the 233rd partial, which 
is we don't we don't really hear that. So there are composers that use those intervals, and yes, they are in the harmonic series, but they don't have the the flavor that we necessarily expect. Um, there's a lot of early like spectralism was kind of flirting with just intonation because it was really looking at the first say like 15 overtones of the harmonic series where you right. start to get things that are flat by 31 cents or sharp by 44 cents. Um, and now that's really expanded up and up and up into, into further partials, but um, you know, we have computers. <laughs> we do have computers. <laughs> yeah. We also have ensembles like the Harmonic Space Orchestra in Berlin with a bunch of specialists that can actually play these right. things live. Right. With um, actually, a Canadian composer named Mark Sabat writes for right. extended mm. Nation. Um, I audited a couple of his classes while I was living in Berlin. Actually, um, another thing is before we had the the equal temperament piano, most instruments were tuned in just intonation. So ju just in, yeah. writing in just intonation to me is actually more like a return to form rather than right. doing something unusual. And I mean, most instruments in the world are, are tuned to just intonation. It's mostly Western classical instruments that are that have all these frets and equal temperament right. keyboards and right, stuff. Right. Just that stupid old piano, honestly. <laughs> I know. What were they thinking? Well, they're trying to make it so that the piano could work in all the keys. Uh, yeah. And there are famous uh, historical moments where Haydn, you know, would slam a, a, a slow movement in or a, or a scherzo in the middle of a symphony or a string quartet that was in a completely foreign key so that everything would sound really super out of tune because everything had been tuned to D major. And then he'd throw it into into F minor and and it would sound really wonky because everybody had tuned to this other key. The idea of having like cursed key centers, cursed yeah. tonalities to me is like really appealing. I love this mm -hmm. idea that changing a key is not just like, oh, we're, we're moving. Um, we're going to hear the exact same thing, but like starting from a different pitch. It's like, no, we're mm -hmm. going to hear like some like underwater distorted you know, gooey version yeah, of the thing. A totally different color. Yeah. And, yeah. and you have, I don't remember who wrote it, but they had like the list of like the characters of the different keys. And one of them, they didn't use the word cursed, but in my memory, it's just like, this one is the worst. Like, just like the wretched, <laughs> wretched key. And that's like, I, I want that back a little selfishly. This yeah. idea of the wretched key. Well, it's, it, they might say, you might say it started with the Greek modes or something like that. You know, there's the, the, what was the the devil's interval? The the mm. augmented fourth was the was the devil's in that wasn't Greek, but you know there was there was some strong feelings about about the tritone, uh, yeah. and keys and the tritone was like the the you know you'd go to hell if you ever used that <laughs> in your writing. That's that's a wretched interval for sure. Yeah, and yet rich as well as wretched. <laughs> Becca, this has been super fun. It's been really great to talk to yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've, I've, it's like 8.30 p.m. and I'm feeling all hyped and energized up from our chat. Great. <laughs> great. It's been, it's been super great. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Thanks, Becca. You've been listening to New Musings on New Music. Check our podcast website for links to music and more information about our guests and conversations. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on new episodes and podcast news. Suddenly Listen acknowledges the support of Arts Nova Scotia and the Canadian Music Centre in the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.